The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we are coming close to the end of a longish period of intensive practice here. And soon to be uh, taking yourself, uh, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for you. Which for most of you actually will entail a much longer period of intensive practice. With probably, with the possibility of wherever you go, Wherever you are, there's your practice. I think for many of us, we come to the end of a retreat with some of the, some thoughts and some feelings that um, aren't so dissimilar to those that we came into retreat with. For many people, um, uh, Though there might be, uh, very well may be, a feeling of excitement and a readiness to go into an extended period of practice, of intensive practice. For some people, just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling of, well, I'm not quite finished out here. I need just a few more days. I need uh, maybe another week. So I can do everything that needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems that some of us have similar thoughts uh, at the time it's, when it's time to come out of retreat. And maybe an excitement and a readiness um, to go into the larger world. And maybe also such thoughts as, well, maybe just a little bit more time. A few more days would be really good. A couple of weeks would be great. Maybe a month to do what needs to be done. And then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out. And I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the going into retreat and the coming out of retreat, there might be some degree of reluctance, resistance. Maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe just essentially just uh, resistance to change. Resistance to ending one way and entering into another way. For some, there may have been an urgency prior to coming to retreat. I just can't wait. Just cannot wait to get into retreat. So ready to be in retreat. And then at the other end, I can just hardly wait to go home. I'm so ready to go home. So ready to get out of here (laughs) 
and get back to my regular life. I mean, that maybe have crossed a few people's minds. I don't know. So you might check in with yourself uh, and see if there might be some of these same kinds of thoughts and uh, feelings, uh, similar condition patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of this retreat that you may have experienced as you were preparing to come here or that you might have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course, we might not feel any resistance or anxiety in either direction, either entering into retreat or coming out of retreat. There's the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations, no particular worries, about just simply moving on to the next thing, the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat, uh, a three-month retreat actually, that I taught quite a number of years ago, one person described a coming out of retreat as um, feeling like, she said, like she was descending, like a plane descending and landing. She said she was feeling the force of gravity, like coming back to Earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes. Because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames. There are no limits. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time. And you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. 
the mind, the heart that doesn't do justice to the body, the mind, the heart that doesn't see, doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into a larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice and how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the slow pace of retreat life. The weather, there's a good one. (laughs) This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness and the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've come, uh, had some taste of the impersonality of change. And we've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is we experience, in the body or the mind and heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment 
And then it, whatever it is, can change quite quickly or simply disappear. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's much more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not to do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in our relationships with others. More clarity in what's important and appropriate what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat life, life is pared down a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change from here to out there. Life in retreat offers comparatively very little distraction. We walk, we eat, we do our yogi job, we sit, we sleep, you meet with me every few days and you do you have spoken very little during this time and within this container of simplicity you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body heart and mind and been been invited to sense see and know is the heart the mind opening to connecting with receiving what is or is it disconnected separated resistant shut off with all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, balance, and a deep sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, heart, and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. Really, we're all so similar. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, We're really all just variations on themes, us humans. 
We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as we, as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms more and more in our heart. And as we come to see this and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart-mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. the possibility of engaging the refuges and precepts as part of our daily practice. Maybe beginning uh, our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that I offered the very first evening of this retreat that was written by Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Zen Farm, some of you may remember. And I'd like to share it with you again because it really is particularly relevant to uh, daily life, a practice in, in the world and daily life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, that supports the process of the purification of the heart and the mind which is intimately connected to the development of concentration and mindfulness and intimately connected to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as our practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, uh, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's really very often around quite ordinary, uh, quite mundane aspects of our life. So a very ordinary, very mundane example from my life. There was a time when I would get into my car, when I would get into my car, I would automatically turn on the radio. Now I suppose it's a you push in the CD, but in that it didn't have CDs at that time. Tapes, maybe. <laughs> at some point, I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided, made a very conscious decision, not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would automatically start to come up off my lap, and move towards the radio knob. The force of habit, as we know, is very strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point, I began noticing the thought to turn on the radio. And when I started noticing the thought, then there really was a choice to or not to. Some of you may have this same habit or have had this same habit. So looking at another change. In this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days, some really big events for you. an especially big day or big event for you might have been something as totally mundane as laundry day. 
for me, um, there were times in uh, in earlier years of doing long, intensive retreats when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day at times that I would find myself planning for it or thinking about it before I went to sleep the night before laundry day. And then when I woke up in the morning, that morning of laundry day, it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind. I was kind of obsessed with it, it seemed. From the laughter, I suspect some of you have had similar experience. And how about the big event of the midday meal? That might be the biggest event every day for some people. So what do we have for lunch today? And as you're eating lunch today, I wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. (laughs) Or the event of a one-on-one practice meeting with me. That might be a big event. Rehearsing beforehand. Mm -hmm. A poem by a wandering Japanese Buddhist monk who died about seven years ago, Nanao Sakaki. And he called this poem A Big Day. Getting water at the spring carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. (laughs) Many years ago, Nanao used to spend uh, time up at the Lama Foundation, which is uh, about 35 minutes north of here. And he'd show up at Lama with his a small <clears throat> small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay there for a few days. They were always really happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains <clears throat> with just this, his knapsack and a sleeping bag, and nothing more than he'd arrived at Lama with. And he'd often stay out um, for a few weeks, and then he'd be back again at Lama. A very dear friend of mine... <clears throat> who was the coordinator at the Lama Foundation uh, during those years when Nanao used to come over there, uh, told me a story about one of the times when uh, Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he'd asked her and another friend who lived up at the Lama Foundation if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said that that was just terrifically wonderful, very special, something that had never been offered uh, from Nanao before. So the, uh, the day, uh, on the appointed day, um, and at the, at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nanao's uh, camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready or any food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them except themselves, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friends said they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, that maybe this was the wrong day. 
but now was really delighted to see them and warm them, welcome, w- welcome them very warmly, and then heartily said, "Well, now let's go out and find dinner." So my friends said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. They came back and built a fire, and cooked what needed cooking. Ate without cooking that that didn't need cooking, and they. She said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or maybe sometimes weeks at a time with almost nothing, and come back strong, healthy. And very happy. Once someone in a practice interview told me about the simplicity of life on retreat, she said it has a really good taste. So we taste it, this good taste, and we take it with us, and it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes in big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. And in the way we spend time with a partner, with family, with friends, and we make choices in how we spend our free time, we truly do have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility. Of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life, <clears throat> and of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must and must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat. Has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we more and more clearly come to see and to know when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And many of you have we've talked about this in practice interviews, and we take this knowing into our life. Outside of retreat,
As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. We find, in fact, that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we connect or reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday life? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout the day when we can just simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath in almost any circumstance, in any activity. From this perspective, then, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and irritations, all of the annoyances and delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat, the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel quite a number of years ago and who had, long before I met her, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, that's a wonderful mirror of a particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that when she was living in this community in France, 
there was an old man who was very difficult. He was a very difficult, very irascible fellow. And she said he was very messy and argumentative. And he wouldn't cooperate. And he wouldn't help with things. And basically he didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much. And he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. She said that he tried for quite a long time to stay in the community. That it was very difficult for him and as well as difficult for other people. And it was so difficult that he finally left the community and went to Paris. Because he said he, he just couldn't bear it anymore. So Gurdjieff followed him to Paris. And he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he just couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. So finally, Gurdjieff offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community, which the man, he couldn't refuse it because he was a very poor man. So he did return. And when he arrived back at the community, she said everyone was really aghast. And they were even more aghast, she said, when they found out that he was being paid to be there. Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting of everybody, and he listened to all of their complaints, she said. And then she, and then she said he laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of kindness, unconditional kindness, and compassion. That's why you pay me, and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread. Yeast for the purification of the heart and the mind. Yeast for our awakening. Yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching amongst the, it's said, 84,000 teachings that the Buddha offered, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upaka. Unconditional kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each of these sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, But they have managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers. Just simply through them being who they are. What they need from us and what they give to us and what they show us. 
So, an example, my two oldest sons, who are now 50 years old, are identical twins. And they continue to show me, they continue to teach me a relationship that I I think is really quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And of course, when they were little, little boys, they would fight with each other, as children do, off and on. But over these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, really never, put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling, or no matter what one or the other uh, has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they certainly have had their ups and downs in their lives. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think, I think this is quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm actually in awe of it. And I really learn from it. It's a great teaching. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem by Turkish poet Edip Kansever, and it's a translation by Richard Tillinghast. The name of the poem is Table. Um, Edip Kansever is actually a contemporary, he's not alive now, but he's actually a contemporary Turkish poet, relatively contemporary. A man filled with with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. He set the sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel. The softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. 
Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path, is first and foremost a focused, concentrated attention that's well grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And as some of you have mentioned, it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And although this same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness is not usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, concentration and mindfulness, or the concentration and mindfulness capacities that you've developed along with the multidimensional facets of understanding of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat all of this is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world there's a change but we don't lose it Mindfulness and concentration and the continuing blossoming of insight, wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat with one of my Burmese teachers, Sadao Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of these monks at the very end of the retreat. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's all he said. I thought it was really good advice. Simple, good advice. And there are some particular ways that I and others, and I'm sure you as well, have found that can be very helpful in bringing a simple yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into your life. One suggestion from 
a Dhamma teacher friend of mine, is that at the end, she said that her suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the Anapana spot, the touching point. One or two minutes at the end of each hour of the day. <laughs> so however long your waking day is, that could be maybe 15 or 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time. And with each of these minutes having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact. The feet on the ground. Your bottom touching a chair. Hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected. Connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. I think really the only hard thing about doing these little brief uh, meditation sessions is to remember to do them. That's the hardest thing, is to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror, breath. Maybe a little stand-up note at your desk, at home or at work, still breathing. Or metta now. There was a a fellow uh, who um, was on staff at IMS who worked in the front office uh, when I was the resident teacher for staff there. And um, he had a little uh, note uh, on his desk, a stand-up note, Uh, that said buttocks. (laughs) It reminded him to pay attention to his buttocks, the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. It also was humor, you know, every time people looked at it, they laughed. The director of the uh, forest refuge, which is the long, some of you know and some of you may not, the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society where I I regularly teach. Um, he has his pro- his computer uh, programmed uh, to uh, sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes. And so when it rings, he stops and he breathes for a few minutes. It was about five minutes, I think, maybe. I found this out because I was having a meeting with him in his office. <laughs> and the mindfulness bell rang. And I said, oh, a mindfulness bell. He says, yes. We stopped now. So we just stopped and we breathed. And then we went on with our meeting. And it was wonderful. It was just great. Walking meditation can really be very important and powerful, a very important, powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen 
concentration and mindfulness. Many of us walk at least a few miles going from place to place, if not within a day, certainly within a week. And we can make some of this uh, walking a time for practice, on purpose. When I lived at IMS, IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many uh, practice meetings uh, with staff each day, and I had a lot of other meetings as well, I really didn't have time during the day to do walking meditation. So at some point I decided <clears throat> that every time I went up and down the stairs, because I did go up and down the stairs fairly often, um, that would be my walking practice. So most days I did this, going up and down the stairs. And at one point um, a staff member came in for his uh, a, a practice interview, and he was obviously quite agitated uh, uh, at, with me, or just agitated, I didn't know it was with me at first, and with a fair amount of difficulty told me that he was very upset, he said, because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him, let alone say hello or anything. And he thought I, he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I told him that um, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And then I certainly wasn't the least bit angry with him. I was just practicing as hard as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, that completely changed his attitude as soon as I told him that. And he was really happy for me. He thought it was great that I had this great idea that I was practicing like that. People may not always understand what you're up to. (laughs) when you integrate your practice into your life in various ways, small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see and feel the benefit of this, as many of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected to at least some once in a while to a group, with a group, even just a group of one or two, or maybe three, to sit together once in a while, check in and see if there's a group, a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, start one. It might mean just inviting one or two other people that you know who meditate or who might be interested in learning how to meditate to join you once a week or maybe every other week to sit together for a little while. You can sit together first and then maybe read something out loud about the teachings, about the practice, maybe listen to a Dhamma talk on a CD or online and then maybe have some Dhamma discussion about what you've listened to or read and also maybe about your practice during that time you're sitting together. It also can be helpful if you do this to pick a theme for a week or a couple of weeks to focus on. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of 
the connection with spiritual friends, how important this is. The Venerable Ananda, in speaking to the Buddha, said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life, perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy will increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. In a, another Nanao Sakaki poem, if you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. <laughs> So I'd like to close the, the talk this evening with uh, two more poems. One last Nanao Sakaki poem, kind of uh, as a tribute to him and as a tribute to our practice. And he called this poem a love letter. Within a circle of one meter... You sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, Play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the Sea of Oxt. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. 
within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle 1 billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry blossoms. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. And there again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And coming back down to earth, <laughs> a poem by the Native American poet Joy Harjo. And she calls this one Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self, to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit silently for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.